Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. The richness of this conversation continues here in part two of the Breaking Green Ceilings episode with Laura Diaz and Samrat Patania from ECEJ and Isabel Lopez from Crisis Collective. We talk about the power of storytelling and also decolonizing education through that power of storytelling. And finally, we also close out the conversation with humility in doing environmental justice work. What does that look like and what are the gaps or needs rather that ECEJ and Rices Collective are creating individually as organizations, but also in their collaboration. I hope you really enjoy this part of the conversation as well. It's surprising how fast time goes, even though this was a two-part series. I'm so grateful to be able to bring their story to you. Enjoy. I remember like when I was going to school, my primary source of information was my teacher, but that changed significantly. Now it's everyone, everywhere, everything. Right. So I can see how the students have very strong opinions. Right. At a very young age, like that's something I do tell my students that when I was 16, 17, like I really didn't know much about the world. Like I was very passionate about some things. Like I probably read more books than most of my students, but my world was very limited in that I did not claim to understand the politics and geopolitics and this and that. Like I said, you all have very strong opinions for being your age. I wasn't like that. And yeah. that's something I always ask them to work on a little bit, that just please be a little bit more open to new ideas. Because you're too young to get like this, what this what would the Set word? in your ways. Set in your ways in this, like with an identity already when you're 17, 18, that's too young, right? I mean, ideally one should always be flexible. One should always be evolving. But especially at that age, you shouldn't be so rigid about who you are. Isabel, have you had a situation where somebody believed the opposite of what you were trying to teach, but then through the artwork and through the storytelling, it changed their opinion? Yeah, it was that student. Because oh. <laughs> I was coming in repeatedly to help them on a mural. And it was literally through just me telling my story, right, of what I've experienced, but also inserting facts, right, like in terms of like NAFTA, right, and why immigration is the way it is, and trying to connect policy with immigration. And and it was a slow process, right? And all of a sudden, he started, because he was smart, you could tell he was smart, right, because he was using a lot of the arguments that Republicans are using at the time, right? And so, mm-hmm. but with being patient and just letting him, right, share his concerns or what he was thinking. And then me, like sharing my experience, my story, and then connecting it with the facts and the policy. And then he started getting involved in Mecha because actually the teacher that I was working with was the Mecha advisor, which is this organization that I was involved in at Sac State. And so he actually became part of Mecha and like became a leader in that organization or in that student organization. So I think that 
it was that that changed his views. And then it even brought him to want to like be a part of the change and be a part mm-hmm. of this organization wow. that really it was to create community, right? Yeah. And continue learning about like your culture really. So it was that particular student that I was shocked because like I came in the year after she's like, you know, he's involved in Mecha and he's just completely 180. And I'm like, really? That one kid that I continuously was having (laughs) conversations with, but you never know who you're going to be able to like touch with these stories. And that's why I think in this like COVID work that I'm doing in my community, it's those trusted messengers that and not necessarily the health professionals that have stories to share, that have testimony, that sometimes people are more receptive to the stories rather than the signs, right? Yeah, yeah. Laura, is that what you're finding as well? That people resonate more with the stories? Yeah, I definitely think so. But that's where we're spending quite a bit of our time in our professional development programming, which is like bringing in community voice in a way that's culturally responsive to that community as well. So so like not colonizing their experience or their reality. So yeah, that's like definitely where our professional development programming is like a piece of it. Yeah. Can I quickly add something? Yes. I was thinking through all of this that my education is engineering, physics, and mathematics. I have to say that it's always about stories. Human beings just are animals that love telling stories. And even when people like people who are really into science and we can be called geeks and nerds, which is a term I learned in the US, we don't have those terms in India. It really is the emotion that those scientific truths evoke in us that make us love physics or mathematics. There is an emotional component to it. It doesn't leave us cold. Like even when I do pure mathematics, which is can people can say very abstract and what's the point of doing this? Yeah. There is an emotional response to seeing the beauty there. It is that what brings us back to it. So it cannot be done without emotions. It really leads us. And the facts just sort of follow that train. And they must always, because we have to do when we are talking about and no, no matter what aspect of our lives, health, climate, all of that has to be fact-based, but I think the emotions always lead us. Yeah. And I think maybe that's what, Isabella, as you were telling the story to that one student, maybe that's what resonated with him is learning about where you're coming from in your experience, telling that story. Because the root causes, right? We have like our education system that starts our history lessons at like a certain point in history. And so I always like to be like, listen, the U.S. has only been around like, and I even draw a little timeline, like 300 years maybe. And like human have been around and different societies, right, have been around like thousands of years. And so like your perspective is based on this timeline right here, this 300 years. And that's more like history, right? Not science necessarily. It doesn't mean it. But anyway, like, yeah, I think that's, impactful right to tell students like listen my people come from a place before there was even borders before mexico was mexico right like Mm -hmm. my people come from otomi which consisted of like puebla like michoacan and so i even 
bring the map and be like, so these borders didn't exist right before that. And so when I see the faces of kids and they're just like, whoa, because they've never heard this before. And so curiosity starts to come in and be like, oh, like, and it gives them a whole different perspective of like humanity rather than like the USA, right? And just like micro view that our education system gives. Right. And Isabel, that's perfect. I love to play with the idea of the pre-humanity as well. In my classes, we're talking about when human beings weren't there on the planet, right? So then as I was once in my algebra class, spoke about evolution and our kinship to all life. And I said, like, look at that tree outside. That tree is your cousin, right? So this kid was like, whoa, what is that? What do you mean I can? So I have to explain that. What does it mean looking at the evolution of life from unicellular organisms, all of that? So then he was very excited and came back next day. He said, Mr. Vahaniam, I went home. We were having dinner. I told my dad, dad, look outside. That tree is our cousin. And my dad said, you, my son, are a fool. <laughs> yeah, it's making those connections that aren't so obvious. And it's like teaching outside of the curriculum. Right. Like that takes a lot of work. But it also makes it fun, right? Because that's yeah. the whole point of it, right? It's kind of. Otherwise, like if you put us in strict, like, oh, you're teaching algebra. Like, but what does it mean to teach algebra, right? There's a whole story to it. Why was the mathematics invented? What was happening there at the peak of the Islamic civilization when algebra really came to the fore? And then how did Europeans come to learn it, right? right. And then what followed as a consequence and what happened before that? So it's always a story. It's just, unfortunately, we try to compartmentalize things and take away those stories, but the stories always exist. Yeah. Laura, there's one thing I wanted to ask you in terms of ECEJ. You mentioned there's the element of using data as a way to like communicate the stories of a community. And then there's also the professional, you said the professional development element of that. What does that entail? Yeah. So it depends. So now, like when I was in the classroom, it was like really being moving in the moment with my students, right? And every day is different. Every year is different. Every cohort is different. Now, where my thinking lives is, is in like cohort of teachers, right? Of educators. Where are they at? What are they trying to do? And how can we support that, right? And I think also something that I don't explicitly say a lot, but this idea of, of kind of decolonizing education and like our schools were like, if, if we look at the demographics of who teachers are, it's largely dominated by white women. And so I really care that the way curriculum is embedded in classrooms are culturally responsive. You know, I'm on like a bunch of, of groups and like when this like new social justice wave kind of started peaking again, and I saw teachers being like, oh, now I want to do environmental justice. I'm like, dude, you should have been doing this the whole time. You don't get to just use this because it's convenient with a like national narrative. And then like the how it's going to be done is almost going to be like a token experience, right? And so that's where, for me, like, I'm really passionate about how they engage or how they're like thinking through bringing environmental justice into their classes. So it's not just a, like, I'm going to show a TED talk and then like, I'm like doing some social justice stuff in my science classroom. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where like the power of story mapping, I think for me as a tool for educators is pretty important. Yeah. Walk me through, like, what are the elements that make teaching environmental justice successful? Because 
I mean, honestly, I didn't know what environmental justice was until like, I mean, I would see examples of it, but I didn't know that that was the terminology used to describe specific situations of environmental injustices brought upon Black and Brown and Indigenous communities. So I'm guessing that some of these teachers are working in places like Samrat that don't necessarily know what environmental justice is or have experiences with it. So how would you go about teaching or training these teachers to teach EJ? Like what are the elements of that make it successful or palatable? The way that we approach it is designed to meet them where they're at and then also a shift. And so I think defining environmental justice, we take a lot of time actually defining what it is and then talking through like what justice center phenomena is and like whose voice needs to be at the center of this work. And so like, I'm lucky that I've had time to like think through this and research this and be in this space. And so then I can bring that into the conversation. And then it's also just like having conversations about like whose voice is occupying time Because if you don't come from an environment like a vulnerable or or oppressed community, then you shouldn't be the one talking. And I do say that, like, I don't worry about being palatable. I think there's certain words that I'm careful about, but I think the work, it does land. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't have other words and it should feel like it's powerful. Like, it should feel no less than powerful work. Mm. And so if they don't feel like they should be the one speaking, then there's like, that's the beauty of education. There's many other modes of like facilitating that learning experience. And that's what we walk through. Like, so it's like, we kind of bombard them with many different ways to engage in this. And then we talk through like, what does it mean to bring justice center phenomena into the class and whose voice should be at the center? And so that's how I approach that when we do that work. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I have a couple, like, I think one more question kind of to round it off, I guess. I hope it does. (laughs) The question that I had as you were talking, Laura, and also to Isabel is, how does the work that you're doing at ECEJ and Rice's Collective, how is it different, if at all, from what we're seeing being implemented in other spaces? Like, what gap or need or perspective that you fulfill, that you help fulfill, that hasn't necessarily been explored in terms of environmental justice and community engagement? For me, I don't think that what I'm doing and what we're doing at ECJ and the collaboration that we're doing with Isabel, like for me, like this is my own perspective, obviously, I don't assume that what I'm doing is novel. What I'm doing is just reflective of what I feel my community needs. There are so many people in this space and there are so many people doing things in, in many different ways. And I also would never, never approach this work thinking that what I'm doing is the right way because I think there's so much humility that is needed in this space. So yeah, I think that's how I approach it. And I view my work just as like, I see a need, there's a need from like my own personal experience. And like, I just want to work in a space where like, I know that there's like something that can be done and I have tools that can help that. If I can add to what Laura said, that I think, and this is something Laura and I really agree on, is that we we really, we firmly, both of us believe that we should put students at the heart of doing the science, which means 
if you're going to talk about, say, EJ, then they should go collect data about it. If you're going to talk about greenhouse gas emissions, then they should look at that, right? It should not be something that, oh, and there's value to, because you can't do all the work yourself. Yet it should not always be that, oh, here's this book, this tomb that you read, and now you're going to answer a few questions, and now you know what this is about. We have to, we want, I mean, there are many terms for this, and this is still a minority movement, but inquiry-based learning is something I think most, a lot of teachers try to do in their classes. So what we're trying to do is combine that activism with inquiry-based projects for students. And I think that's where the real cash value of our collaboration lies. Cash value. Like a true businessman. Decolonize your language, Samrat. No, I'm kidding. Oh, I have been, I have been colonized. My mind has been colonized by all of We this. all have. We all have. But I like it. It's funny. I actually like that. Sometimes I like some phrases. They're not very, like, I know I'm not about cash, but I like the word cash. Right? Yeah. Sounds no, I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. What I think is just really unique about ECJ is exactly what you said. I think that's what really drew me to Laura's and your story is, I think there's so many EJ initiatives, but there aren't enough. And each one of them looks very unique, but also the element of including the youth and empowering them with how to collect that data, interpret that data and use it as a way to empower themselves to like make that change. Like, gosh, we just can't have enough of that. It takes to a whole other level that I really appreciate. Thank you. I agree with Laura about there's so much humility that you need to have to do this work. But I also think that like people are doing this work without that, right? And so it's such a hard balance because people like to, especially in the like white environmental justice or like organizations, right? They're like, oh, we're trying to do like DEI. And I go back to Stewart's of Red Coast because they hired like, a consultant to do DI work and they're not from the community, they're not of color. So like, I don't see that happening. So yes, you have to have the And I also think that you are filling a gap. Like that's just a fact, right? You are a person of color. You do have these experiences and we have to learn how to take up that space and say, no, we are doing it in the right way, right? Your way is actually the wrong way, right? This is not a good example of what not to do in this field. And so like, I struggle with that because I'm that person that wants to like be in the background and be like, I'm just here. Like I'm the person fiscally sponsoring you and I want you to like, you lead. But I also realize that if I don't do that, then like another organization that isn't doing it the right way is going to come and like take credit for it. Yeah. I've had that happen. Right. So it's a really hard like balance to achieve, right? To humble, but also to take up space. And so I think we also have to learn how to like acknowledge the important work that we're doing in these spaces. Yeah, there's the risk of (laughs) this is ironic of the environmental justice work being appropriated. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, no, it definitely is being done. I mean, that's what's happening in academia. So it already is has and continues to happen how do you see it in academia what does it look like 
I mean, you can just literally look at the authors. (laughs) (laughs) Largely not from EJ communities. Yes, there are people in the space that are people of color and the father of environmental justice, Robert Bowlers. Like, yes. And a lot of people in that space are also privileged white people. Yeah. Um, So goes back to what you were saying. Right. And I have sort of mixed feelings about this. And this can be, I don't know, I'm also cognizant of all of your time, but I sort of have mixed feelings about this because there are clearly people who are doing fantastic work on this, right? And like, does the color of their skin matter? Like, on one hand, I would say no, because if you're doing fantastic work, then it shouldn't matter, right? And yet there are those folks who are clearly using their privilege to just jump on the bandwagon because, well, this is the thing that's in, right? And it's sometimes difficult to, I don't know, unless I really know the person, I can't tell them. Like, and we've had experience. Well, there's, like, there's both academic and social capital right now in doing yeah. social justice work. And so like, it's really difficult. Yes, yes. And money, like and actual capital. Yeah. And so I do have a really hard time seeing what the demographic breakdown is of people that it's like leading their research in academia. Because again, I think it comes down to like, I think the best way to really quickly shift environmental injustice to environmental justice is to have actual representation. Yeah, that power shift, right? Of all oppressed communities. Like, yes, that includes like poverty, right? Yeah, I think Laura brings up a really good point is like, or it made me think rather about how it's okay to have non-BIPOC folk in the EJ movement. But as long as those folks know that they shouldn't be taking up space and resources and power, but knowing that their role is to kind of facilitate the elevation or the empowerment of, well, I don't mean that the non-BIPOC folk should empower the BIPOC folk. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. What I'm trying to say is like, just know that your role is to be more of like using your privilege rather to create that space, that power for BIPOC folk to just lead the EJ movement. Right, which is like an auxiliary role. But the problem is that's not a normative white supremacy culture value. So. Right. Then there are those communities that are, say, so if you look at the Appalachia and what happened in the Appalachia with coal mining, right? Or what happened in Pennsylvania with fracking, right? These are poor white communities. Yeah. To me, it sounds more like it's about giving voice to the communities that have borne the brunt of the, all of this pollution, right? And it doesn't matter who that community is, right? Like, it doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter what language they speak. It's just that has your community been impacted and are you being given a voice to fight back against the injustice? Like, that sort of sometimes simplifies it for me. And that's going back to my students. That's also a tactic that works in my classes. So when I show them videos about fracking in Pennsylvania, most students connect with it because they see someone like themselves suffering because of the environmental harms. If I show that from another part of the world or another part of the country, people who don't look like them, they are less likely to empathize with them. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's why I think it's like environmental justice. Like, yeah, there's environmental racism, like obviously addresses like literally the environmental oppression of like black and brown community. But yes, like environmental justice encompasses all oppressed, like overpolluted, overburdened, vulnerable communities that don't have equal access. Right. So yeah. Exactly. Well. The conversation just got spicier, but time is against us. 
But I would love to have y'all again a few months after because the amazing thing about these conversations is like they never end. And I feel like I have more questions. I want to pick your brain some more, but this gives us an excuse for a second conversation later down the line. And then we can catch up and see how things have kind of come to fruition through your collaboration. So we'll go into our lightning round, which is the four questions. Answer the first thing that comes to your mind. Laura, I know you have to hop off pretty soon. So maybe we can start with you. Okay. All right, great. So let's start off with the first question here, which is, what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? That's tough because I feel like it's just like a collection of small, really impactful experiences over time. That There's a really good book by Rob Nixon about environmentalism of the poor. Okay. I think it's so good. Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor. Like, that's a really good book. Okay. Well, we'll add that to our resources page. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I don't know that it's a habit, but I just know that I'm like privileged with my opportunity. And I'm just reminded by that every day. And it grounds me in my work. All right. What's the best piece of advice you've received? I got the really good advice from a professor of mine. Her name is Zaya Malawa. She's in the nonprofit world for birthing justice. And she actually just recently told me, don't allow white supremacy culture to silence your power. That was something I really needed here in the moment. That's a very powerful piece of advice. Yeah. And finally, what is your superpower? (laughs) I don't have one. I don't know. (laughs) I don't have one. Laura's amazing dancer. Dancing is Oh yeah, I'm a dancer. <laughs> ah, look at that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Laura, thank so you so much yeah. for your time and I'll look forward to connecting with you some more in the future. Yeah. All right. So we'll go to Isabel then. If you're ready, I'll ask you the first question, which is what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? I do a lot of like Twitter reading. And I recently read like two days ago, Mexico will replace 16 million tons of GM corn with native variety. Wow. So that was really powerful to read. I remember having an organization come out from Mexico they were visiting and they did like a community presentation about how in their community in Mexico, they managed to keep Monsanto out. So... That was really powerful and inspiring to have those folks come out and like tell us about how they organized around that. So that's always inspirational is like really concrete ways to sort of speak, like do environmental justice, right? Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. How many tons? 16 million tons. Wow. That's ridiculous. They're doing some, looks like that's from an organization called Regenerational International. Okay. Regeneration International, yeah. Very cool. But that was incredible to read, yeah. (laughs) What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Oh, man. I think just the habit of getting to know people and like hearing where they come from and why they do the work that they do. It gives me like um, like a sense of their values to determine whether like 
certain collaborations are good or not, right? you know? So I always loved getting to know people. A lot of the relationships that I formed in this work have turned into just like really cool relationships. Like my neighbor, who is an artist in our collective, we bought property together. So like I live in a duplex and then him and his wife live in the other duplex and he works with, you know, like a teaching artist. And then his wife used to be on our board, used to be county council for the county. And now she's like the new director of equity of the equity office in Sonoma County. So that's like a project. And she also sits on the school board. So just like a lot of folks that I met that way that we continue building. Yeah. That's a good habit. It's just getting to know people for sure. Yes. And that's kind of like one of the, I guess, recipes for successful collaboration as well. What's the best piece of advice you've received? The reason why I even was so curious about them was because I remember them, her saying that both her and her husband met when they were young at La Paz, which is like the community that Cesar Chavez bought for like a dollar and he moved all the organizers there and they all lived there. And so she was born out of that community. Very cool. Mm-hmm. And so that was like the story that I was like, so curious. I was like, what? Like. And then I realized it's that upbringing that brings her to the work that she's doing now yeah. right, as an attorney and her husband too, as an artist. And then advice was assume good intention. That has helped me like as of late is a lot because I think because there's been a lot of trauma in regards to like racism and all of this, like I, sometimes my mind tends to go to places that I think some Rod said like we were easy to call out like racism or different things. And sometimes it's warranted, but for my own mental health, that like assume good thoughts. So I, I don't automatically jump to a certain conclusion. Yeah. That's helped me with my own mental health. Yeah. That's really good advice because yeah, you're right in this work. It's just very easy for, at least for me to blame somebody else for not getting something like understanding a concept or seeing something the way I do. And so, yeah, it's part of that humility that you were talking about in the work that we need to be doing, right? What is your superpower? I think just for sure, connecting people. Mm -hmm. I think that this work wouldn't have happened or this organization wouldn't be what it is without all of the connections and people that I've brought together. And it continues to grow because of that, right? Because of the connections that I continue to make, including this right now that's happening, like without Laura and the collaboration there, I wouldn't have met you all, right? And so on and so forth. So like, yeah. Yeah. I think that's my superpower is just connecting people. Connecting people. That's a good one. All right. That was my last one. Samrat, it's your turn. So the first question is, what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? One of the things that has influenced me the most, actually, is uh, called The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, who's Dawkins' mythologist. Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in, I've always thought that in another life, I would be an ethologist. I would study animal behavior. It didn't happen this lifetime. I was born in India. 
You make that sound like a very unfortunate thing. Is it because if you're good at science, mathematics, people said, oh, you should become an engineer or a doctor. Yeah. But that book was phenomenal. And I read it in my mid-20s. I was blown away. So yes, and it has informed a lot of what I do, where I see the commonality to our life and understanding our true story of being on this planet. And I think that gives me an ethical framework, which somebody might say, why would a biology textbook give you an ethical framework? But it really does. So that's been very powerful. Okay. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I think, yeah, it's a habit. It's not, not, most people wouldn't say it's a good habit, but I get fired up too easily because like you tell me about an injustice and I'm angry. And that anger is very useful because if I can control it, then I have a lot of fire in the belly. And though, like I said earlier, I've been very privileged in my life. I have been very lucky in so many ways. I also think that that comes from, this fire comes from this capacity for empathy and that helps me. And so that habit of constantly getting all worked up about things mm-hmm. gives me the energy to do most of the work. Yeah. Okay. I can relate to that. What's the best piece of advice you've received? My mentor gave me this advice when I was wondering if I should continue doing Like I was thinking of going into ecological economics, doing a PhD in ecological economics. And he said, think about where can you make the most difference like what is that you can do that other people cannot mm-hmm. and if you are in that space then you're probably in the right place right it's just don't try it like i would say oh i have to go to this protest and he would say hey can somebody else stand in your place in the protest and though this seems like a strange advice to give to somebody but i was also doing math research and he would say he said can somebody else from the protest do the research that you're working on i said Probably somebody, went, he said, so then maybe you should work on this thing because this thing is important, right? Yeah. So not the best example, but I think really sticking to something that others would find difficult to replicate, I think was very useful. And that's how I look at my work in my school. I feel like if I'm not there, can they have a teacher who's lived in another part of the world? who brings this environmental outlook to teaching physics and mathematics. And the likelihood is the answer to that question is no, they probably cannot find another person like that. Yeah. Because who would be that crazy to do that sort of a thing? So that has really helped me be settled and come to peace with the work that I'm doing. Okay. Finally, what is your superpower? I'm good at mathematics in my head. I can crunch numbers in my head. I love doing that all the time. So that's what a- is one thousand five hundred and thirty-four times twenty-five. No, that's, <laughs> that's I could give you an approximate answer there, but that's I don't think that's what you're looking for. Yeah, but, <laughs> that's still um, cool. It's way better. Than but it's what just I, I love doing that. So that's I love doing mathematics in the head, and I think that seems like a superpower to people because they don't see how it's deconstructed. Yeah. That there's a process behind it, unless you're someone like this wonderful mathematician from India, Shakuntala Devi, who is just incredible. Like she's like a human computer. I think most people don't see that there are patterns that we use to pull off certain mm-hmm. things. And so it's just fun and enjoyable. That's not how I was taught math. It was yeah. just like you have to like memorize the multiplication table and you have to like memorize like. I don't know how to describe it, but we weren't given like smart ways of doing math. It was like very clunky. (laughs) Right. And it's funny because it's like multiplication tables are cool and it's important, but then you also have 
to be given the freedom to play with things yeah. and figure out new ways of solving a problem as opposed to saying, oh, this is how you solve a problem. Yeah. So it's just unfortunate. Like that's again goes back to it. That's not inquiry based learning. That is just teacher centered. It's most convenient for me yeah. to deliver this way. So that's how you're going to learn something. Exactly. It's just memorizing. All right. Well, we've come to an end to our conversation or our session today. Is there anything else that you would like to add? No, Sapna, thanks so much. This is Anissa, but it was very nice to meet you. I've heard about you and your work, but this was a wonderful way to get to know more about you. And Sapna, thanks so much for doing this work. It's fantastic that you're giving voices to people like Laura and Isabel. Again, I see myself as an outsider here because I come from a very different, like my immigrant story is very different. But we're giving voice to people like Isabel and Laura who make such amazing work. It's amazing. And more vivid power, all three of you. It's awesome. Well, thank you. I also feel that even though you do have a, a different narrative or experience, you are still, I think, a demonstration of what, I know we overuse this word is, but what an ally looks like or what a change maker looks like, essentially. In addition to, of course, Laura and Isabel. Awesome. Well, Isabel, did you want to add any last words here? Good. No, I just want to thank you for your work and for giving us space to share our work. It was nice to meet you, Samra, and I always have an appreciation for educators and what they do. So, yeah, it was nice to meet you as well. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much to all of you for making time and telling your story. I know we went like way overboard our allocated time, but I really do appreciate the conversation we had. And I think these are conversations that we don't get to have very often and just reflecting on our work and the impact that we're making. So thank you so much again for your time, for sharing your thoughts and experiences. And we'll definitely include links to your organizations and all of your work so that people can continue to learn more and also be involved if they'd like. So thank you so much. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.